you learn more about your own culture when you start studying another one. So mm. the more Chinese philosophy I learnt, the more I saw the gaps and reliefs in Western conceptions of how the mm. world works. And my understanding of Descartes and Hume and Kant is infinitely richer from having read Bodhidharma, right. Daisetsu Suzuki, mm. Dogen Zenji. Mm. Absolutely. Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In this episode, I join Will at the table as we chat with Dr. Adrian Moore. Adrian is an academic philosopher with a keen interest in both continental and Eastern philosophy, especially existentialism, anarchism and Buddhism. Adrian's interests are clearly pretty wide, and this episode reflects that. It was a really interesting conversation to be a part of, and both Will and I found ourselves taking long detours down philosophical rabbit holes around the nature of consciousness and the self, non-dualism, and uh, Pythagoras' religious obsession with the number three, funnily enough. This was a less structured and more wide-ranging chat than we normally do at Pilot Talk, and I've chosen to leave it uncut. In part, this is for my own sanity as an editor, but it's also to let you enjoy the rabbit holes as much as I did. I hope you do. Adrian Edward Moore. Doctor. Doctor, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thank you for coming on to Pillar Talk. So what is it that you do and... Um, Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, excellent. So um, at the moment, I'm tutoring the core ethics unit at Bond University. So this is, I've, I've been arguing for this for a long time, that everyone who does any university study should have to do ethics. Mm. Um, it just sort of really, to me, seems like the crux of everything. Um, so yeah, so I don't have any philosophy students at the moment. It's a bit weird as a philosopher. Um, right, so they're all like other students who are doing this mandatory ethics course. Yeah, yeah. So mostly this semester, I think I have one class full of law students and two classes full of biomed students. Yeah. Um, Interesting. How yeah. does that differ in relation to like the questions that they ask and how they engage with the... Uh, yeah, I suppose, I mean, for an intro philosophy course, I guess very often you're like introducing the language anyway mm. um i suppose the the yeah the big distinction i guess is just that they don't really want to be doing philosophy we don't we don't actually do, we don't actually do a lot of philosophy we do like one week of actual philosophy and we cover like levinas um, and the idea of, of ethics as first philosophy and look at all these ways in which he, he looks at like the consciousness of Nazism and things like that. And then the rest of the course is just things like, you know, this is how a utilitarian thinks. Yeah. Um, uh, and then we go into, you know, industry specific stuff because most of it's like, yeah, gotta be industry specific to mm. tick all the boxes for the university. That's quite a weird transition from consciousness of Nazis to, <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> to utilitarianism. Yeah, it's like it's a it's, it's a really like slow run up, and then we suddenly have one huge heavy week, and then it mm. like goes back down into you know mm. this is this is the problem of technology. And so, where does your area of research lie within philosophy? Um, 
I would sort of... I don't really have one area of research. It's mm-hmm. sort of been a bit intentional. I never wanted to be pigeonholed nice. too much. Um, You're speaking to two people who aren't doing a major within... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Perfect. That's the best way to do it. Um, yeah, sure. And I mean, I even... I one of the the most difficult parts of the thesis was that I was just covering so many different things and trying to tie it all into a single kind of thesis. Mm -hmm. Whereas, um, I guess the more traditional way of doing it is kind of picking one central idea and really getting into Mm. just that one thing. Um, so yeah, I, I picked up a lot. So there's sort of like overlapping things with, uh, the existentialists, um, East Asian philosophy, brought in a bit of anthropology into it um mm-hmm. a fair bit of political philosophy um yeah it all kind of like decided itself as i was writing it i guess like i mm. i yeah um in the end the the original plan never came to fruition i think i threw away the first seventeen thousand words i wrote Jeez, never like really? looked at that again wow yeah um, uh, i was speaking to um <laughs> one of the lecturers for the upcoming thesis and you were saying that like you know most students don't actually know their thesis topic until they've written the last sentence yeah you're like oh that's what it's about (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. definitely so Um, and even then sometimes right yeah yeah it takes a few years after that to kind of distill it down into that ted talk um Mm kind of level where you can you can really get the ideas across to people Mm -hmm. so what specifically about the existent like which existentialists which ideas in the existentialists and also specifically what eastern philosophy yeah eastern philosophy um so the the two core thinkers i i was looking at were nietzsche and albert Camus. Okay. this is in your um, phd thesis yeah, right. yeah, yep, yep, cool. yeah um so about the first third of it is Nietzsche and the, the sort of diagnosis of nihilism in modern Europe. So he's looking at uh, the decline of things like the traditional institutions of the church, mm-hmm. um, our kind of distrust of government power, um, our economies are failing. It's one of the things I have to bring up a lot that um, colonialism is not a sign that your civilization is going well. <laughs> um, you need to go out there and find new virgin lands to, to kind of re-kick your economy and re-kick your society mm. um and so it's it's throughout going all the way back to the greeks um if you're colonizing it's a sign of failure um Interesting. so there's all these sorts of things going on and and nietzsche's sort of trying to reckon with um the decline of those kinds of sources of meaning both on on a societal level and a personal level so his father was a, a protestant minister yeah um, who died when Nietzsche was about six years old, I think it was, of a, a hereditary brain paralysis. And it's part of the same reason that Nietzsche started devolving mm. into a form of insanity later in his life. So he sort of had this idea of his father as this bulwark of his life. And um, at the age of six, he's suddenly questioning, why would God let this wonderful father of mine die? Mm. You know, he did all the right Christian things. He was proselytizing the Bible. So obviously this must be a sham. Mm. Um, so a lot of it is him kind of trying to reckon with uh, sort of historical examples from other parts of the world that are, are very newly discovered by Europeans. So they're colonizing India at this time. Um, Germans are bringing back uh, Indian texts and artifacts and things that they've stolen. Um, and it's, it's sort of generating this, this field of philosophy. Um, 
so Nietzsche was originally very interested in Schopenhauer, but later in life kind of moves away from him. Mm. Um, and Schopenhauer is a, or claims to be a Buddhist or a Buddhist, mm. as he, as he <laughs> puts it. <laughs> that's what okay, yeah, your thesis. Yeah. So, um, so how did Schopenhauer interpret Buddhism? Um, yeah, so I mean, it was very early. He was one of the, the very first people to kind of openly talk about it. And I don't think he was quite trying to replicate Buddhist philosophy in his own work. He was kind of making the claim that he had fallen into the same fundamental truths about the way the, the universe functions as the Buddhists had. Um, so he's sort of saying he came to them independently. And then upon reading the Buddhists, he's like, oh, I, sh- I should describe myself as one of them. Right. Um, so they were kind of like working. So like the Buddhists were... Um, coming up with a system of philosophy in Asia and then Schopenhauer is doing the same thing in Europe and then he reads Buddhist texts from India. It's like, yeah. oh, Very poorly translated on. Buddhist texts. Yeah. Very yeah, early yeah, yeah. translations of Buddhist texts. Mm-hmm. And there's other um, sort of German philosophers around that period of time who are... Um, uh, one of my favorites is uh, Eric Meinlander. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not been able to find English translations of his work anywhere, but mm-hmm. it came up in a in a presentation I was um, attending by a German philosopher, and Meinlander is sort of a secret Buddhist, <laughs> and he he kind of thinks that the the universe is um, the decaying corpse of God, that God in his sort of his infinite perfection became really bored at being an infinite perfection, and so he kills himself. And we yeah. are the universe is the physical body of God decaying over time. And we're just the maggots eating the body of God. That's right. why it sort of like appears both tragic and beautiful to us at the same kind of time. Yeah. There's, so, there's, there's, um, there's a, um, a story uh, that I was reading in the Tibetan book of living and dying that talked about, you know, um, you know, if you have lived on like a paradise, you experience no pain, you're kind of like a perfect being. You just get really bored. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I guess that's what happened to God in Mindlander's like, uh, case. In a lot of sort of old Indian philosophy, I suppose the the easy way of kind of describing it is as a kind of cosmic drama. So mm. the, the the Godhead, the Brahman, infinitely living through a cycle of time and sort of decides, well, you know, I could, I have all the power of the universe. I can just dream any life I want to live. Mm. So just dreams the perfect life, you know, nice and rich, beautiful women or men, depending on what this particular God had once. Um, and they just, they just love it. And they wake up after and like, that's really refreshing. That was a great life. All right. So tonight I'll pick another one and keep just dreaming these wonderful lives. And eventually that too gets boring because you're in control you know what's going on and so they're like all right well we'll have a bit of risk let's have a life where i don't know what's going to happen and the idea is that these dreams keep getting made and made until the godhead is dreaming the very life you're living right now this is the one he would have lived to to kind of have that experience and so all of us are just um kind of representations of the godhead within its own kind of reality mm. in order for it to relate to itself and generate that kind of meaning so that existence isn't just perfect and boring forever. Mm. So in a sense, the perfectness of the world is within every single person. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, yeah. in, in every single being. 
and we're we're all and it's sort of you know it, it kind of feels like a bit of a cop out to say to someone like you know you have leprosy you're homeless and and mm. your legs don't work but at least you're the godhead um, <laughs> it's not really great comfort but i don't think it's meant to be comfort in that sense that mm. it's it's more of a a kind of metaphysical claim of of the the kind of oneness of consciousness mm. that um, we should yeah. not be rejecting these people as somehow inferior because they are also a reflection of humanity and so mm. we need to um, give them that kind of respect and of course this kind of gets complicated when you bring in things like the caste system and whatnot mm. so um, there's always going to be that interaction between the political and the theological mm. yeah. in that kind of sense if we just step back a bit when I started like looking at philosophy and doing my subject in Kant, there was a big emphasis on you know which translation to read, which translations are good. Mm. So in philosophy, this is quite a basic question, but why is it why is translation such an important part of um, like the philosophical inquiry? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, on, on the most basic level, there are words with no translations. Mm -hmm. So, like, if we were to... What, what's the English translation of touché? Mm -hmm. Kind of. I mean, we understand what it means. We can fold that into our language, and we can mm. probably come up with some kind of concepts of it. But it's, mm. it's very sort of tied to that linguistic field. Mm. I think it's something Nietzsche was very attuned to. He, he for example, said that you should not... Um, write an opera in German because the very field of operatic music is made with the idea of the Italian language and its sort of bellicosity uh, and that the Germans can make musical theatre but it should not be opera um, just because that's and so I don't think he would have been uh, was it Mozart? No, not Mozart I'm trying to imagine someone singing in German Yeah, me too <laughs> I can't imagine it would be as nice as you know, Italian Mozart did some operas um, mm. Were they as good as the Italian ones? Nietzsche would say no. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not an expert in opera, so I'm not going to make a claim on that one. Yeah, um, they might be great. So, at a basic level, we first of all have words which cannot be translated. So yeah, and words represent concepts. So there's concepts that we maybe can't quite grasp. Yeah, and you'll often find that when you're when you're sort of reading a, a translation, even of French or German philosophy into English, which is not very far a linguistic jump, that yeah. they will just keep the German terms in. Mm. Um, mm. because yeah it's 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 just very very specific meanings mm. that are culturally bound mm. um, and this kind of comes up in the problem of uh sort of trying to revive indigenous philosophies mm. um that we have actively stamped out languages that's sort of the first um role of the colonizer is to enforce linguistic mm. um, homogeny there and so once you start eliminating a way of describing the world you've kind of eliminated mm. a way of experiencing it as well so mm. we've broken apart whole phenomenologies and, and eliminated them uh, and, and understanding it yeah. yeah and so I, I think that's that's sort of like the the kind of yeah the big problem of of translation in philosophy I suppose, you know, that little experiment where you get a paper and you put it through Google Translate into French and then yeah. to German and Croatian and then back to English. And it it's absolutely yeah. incomprehensible. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just sort of 
too much nuance in an individual so, language and its relation to a philosophy to really capture it in a translation very well. So you said that, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but in your doctorate, you said that, you know, Nietzsche describes the conscious, conscious mind as classifying the world. Mm. Is that, that would be a function of language, wouldn't it be? Yeah, so he, he wrote a, a text um, called On Truth and Lies in the Extra Moral Sense. So okay. he, he wants to look at them uh, not connected to whether or not truth is a good thing and lying is a bad thing, but rather um, how do we understand our relationship to knowledge through our conceptions of truth and lying. And he sort of thinks mm -hmm. that in, in a way all descriptive language is a kind of lie and he sort of uses the example that a biologist is like okay i'm going to classify a camel um mm. as being a hoofed animal with two humps and a you know a certain kind of face structure and whatnot and then he goes out into the world and he's like aha a camel like, you haven't you haven't really discovered anything you've <laughs> just classified it like it's not mm. it's not really um in any way, you, you can't really represent the world with language. It's mm. sort of like trying to nail down the shoreline in a sense, yeah. like the world is too... Um, would, would you say that, that Nietzsche's conscious mind where it classifies things and puts a story or, a or words to a certain object is in a lot of ways similar to Buddhism's concept of the ego? Um, yeah, I, I would probably say, and I mean, like, the, the ego is itself a classification of mm. a function of the mind, right? Mm. Um, and, uh, and if I might add, when you look at, like, Western interpretations of, you know, the ego, it's like this evil thing that, like, does it, like, causes all the suffering and mm. you, you have to destroy it and... Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, like, for a long time, the ego was just kind of... The cogito and the ego are not very far. Mm -hmm. Um, removed from one another. What's that mean? Uh, so so uh, if we go back to Descartes, um, cogito ergo sum. Uh, so, so the thinking mind is the soul, the spirit, the, the kind of locus of your consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, and while that is not identical to the concept of ego, it's, it's very closely related and, and probably in the same sort of fertile ground mm -hmm. uh, as what became what we call Freud's ego now. Mm -hmm. uh, though Freud was another one who, who pilfered a lot of Eastern philosophy and didn't really mention that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's a direct line between uh, sort of Schopenhauer's interpretation of Buddhist philosophy and where Freud ended up. Mm. Uh, and we can kind of tell that not because of the, the works that he referenced, but by the works that were in his library that were really well read, but didn't appear in any of his books. Mm. Um, so he, he read everything from Nietzsche and said, oh, I've never heard of the guy. Um, <laughs> and he never like, and it, but like in his office after he died, we can find them. Like there's just like a whole section of Nietzsche books that he's clearly read through. Yeah. Doggy um, corners and notes. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and <laughs> but he's never This is interesting. Don't know the guy. And you can find things that are like, you know, almost almost verbatim um, yeah right similar within descriptions Freud, is. within yeah. freud from nietzsche yeah. so so how would you define what the ego is then um i suppose i i would sort of call the ego what we would call the uh, in in phenomenology we would call it the pre-reflective consciousness 
I guess. What do you mean? Uh, <laughs> For so, so this is your sort of your your reactive consciousness, the thing okay. that's that's um, grasping things in the world. Um, your intentional consciousness, or maybe actually, yeah, the intentional consciousness and the pre-reflective are probably a bit different. Um, so the pre-reflective would be sort of your 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 moral intuitionism, I guess. So you, uh, what is it? The um, question of if 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 your family dog gets hit by a car, we and everyone's hungry, would you eat the dog? <laughs> And depending on what kind of cultural background you're from and, and, and what your your sort of family associations are, you would have a different instantaneous reaction to that. And it's yeah. got nothing to do with, is the dog going to be harmed by this? It's already mm. dead, right? So, so it's pretty reflective because it's before so, we're actually engaging any kind of moral framework to answer that question. Yeah. It's our pure instinctive reaction. And that would be the same sort of thing that is, you know, your, your kind of... Um, you feel hungry and you want to eat something before you kind of decide what you want to eat or do you like this particular meal or that particular meal. Or whether eating is a good idea. Like yeah, absolutely. You feel like a, someone with a substance addiction might like um, feel bored and, and want alcohol before engaging in any like... Yeah, um, absolutely. Mm. Um, and so the ego consciousness would be more associated with the, the intentional consciousness, the idea of... Mm. Um, so intentional just means in phenomenology that you have consciousness of something so if you're looking at a chair your consciousness is intentionally uh geared towards that chair um just just quickly um what is phenomenology again just for general audience yeah so phenomenology is a kind of reaction against um german idealism um so rather than sort of classifying the categories of universal human consciousness it's engaging with our experience of human consciousness we're no longer really interested in the the noumena um the stuff behind our perceptions the Mm. real world Mm. if that's inaccessible to us why do philosophy about Mm. it uh so it it's entirely engaged with this is how we experience meaning and consciousness what can we then derive from that so it's a philosophical tradition which is focused on human subjective experience as yeah. a way of engaging with philosophical ideas. Yeah. So for example, there's um Heidegger gets into this idea of um the the uh hermeneutic cycle that we we describe something in the world and then because we've described that we're predisposed to see it, which confirms mm. that it exists in the world and we end up sort of reinforcing these ideas mm. of what's out there. Um and that's completely separate from the question of is the world as we see it real? It's mm. it's more how do we construct an idea of the real through a psychological process and okay. what can we kind of tell from that? Mm. Um, and so, I kind of feel like that that branches over into we could easily describe Buddhist philosophy as phenomenology. Yeah, because um, I guess they just look at the experiences that you had. They would it be correct in saying that um, like you can tell it's phenomenological because I kind of reject metaphysical questions like the yeah. story of the the, the term arrow. we use is bracketing okay. so we bracket out human consciousness from the rest of the universe um, we're not really we're not concerned with questions like are numbers real um, mm. we're, we're concerned with how do we perceive numbers mm. what do we get out of that yeah mm. 
Um, so if it's, if it's grounded mostly in the human experience, you would probably call it phenomenology. Whereas mm -hmm. if it's, you know, um, what's the essence of this lamp or this chair or whatever, that's mm -hmm. going back to your um, empirical and rationalistic forms of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So going back to the ego, definition of the ego, um, how is intentionality related to the ego? Yeah, so um, I guess when we, we sort of conceive of the ego, we're kind of having... Um, We, we have sort of an intentional apprehension of our own consciousness. We're kind of forming it as an object that can be apprehended, defined, and classified. Um, whether or not that's actually a real object, because you can't sort of like actually psychologically grasp something that's just sort of like the metaphor we use for it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's sort of this this kind of construction of an object of the mind in the way that we would define an object of the body mm. uh, and this is why I sort of think it comes back to that idea of the Kagito um, that Descartes was sort of like looking at what are the uh, exclusive functions of mind that it's indivisible and you can't kind of like have half a well you can kind of have half a thought <laughs> but you can't cut a thought in half physically and be like this is one half of it and this yeah. is the other you can't, you can't sort of um, define I'm seeing something and that that, that piece of vision I have takes up space in the real world. It doesn't mm. do that. And so we can kind of start defining these things that are, you know, the body does this and the mind does this, and they're both exclusive mm -hmm. from each other. Um, so what would Buddhism's reaction be to that? So they, they would, and this is sort of a, a general overview because... Um, in a way, we have to remember that Buddhism is sort of like describing Socratism, yeah. um, and it's yeah. it's kind of like the 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 cannon fire of all the philosophy yeah. that's kind of come out of yeah. that, right? Tradition um, with many different <laughs> yeah, definitely, schools. and yeah. it's sort of interacted with other philosophies and mm. um, and whatnot. But the the general idea is that that ego consciousness is an illusion that you've created to deal with the world. Um, and so that's the part of you that's sort of like the, the I, the, um, that's like the source of all your desires in a sense, your mm -hmm. attempt to classify things as being either good or bad, desirable or avoidable. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not real. It's mm -hmm. kind of a function of language. Right. Um, and, and the, the, quickest way to eliminate desire is to eliminate the source of it mm -hmm. which is your ego consciousness um mm -hmm. right, your, so. your kind of conception of of the the psychological self as an object so, so we, wait sorry you go yeah. okay so um we kind of have this dualistic notion of um mind and body from from descartes and and um that seems pretty prevalent in in general, I think in most people's intuitions, when they think about um, the mind and their self, like when I go around in the world, I, I tend to sort of see myself as something distinct from my body and my actions. And I'm like this thing which sits inside the head. And um, it even comes up in just sort of saying my body, my body, right? Yeah. As if, as as if, if, it's implying an ownership by it, by yeah, an, yeah. Like an external or an internal thing. Yeah, right? As if I'm the avatar. You, you are your this. body, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's also strong monist traditions in the West that it's you know um, 
trying to remember the names of them all. Um, Barclay. Barclay thinks that everything is idealism, that we're just minds. Right, yeah. And, and um, anything that appears physical is just a kind of trick of the mind. Hmm. Uh, and then on the other side, you have the, um, the, the kind of physicalist monists like David Hume, who are sort of... With the eliminated um, materialists. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we... But we don't really have a strong non-dual tradition. So what's in, that mean? So uh, I, I guess that would sort of see mind and body as broadly emergent of one another. Mm. What about the um, Stoicism? Could you classify them? Yeah, Stoicism... As the closest thing the West ever got to... It, it is, and, and like a, a nice shorthand description of Stoicism is kind of Roman Buddhism. Um, <laughs> it sort of makes sense. Um, I think that they sort of, they retreat into the ego a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they sort of use that, a, a, or kind of use that as a shield against the influences of the world. Rather than eliminating the self, they're sort of like, how do I make the self resistant to mm. um, external influence? Mm. Right. You said that um, the ego is the source of desire. And, you know, Buddhism and the non, like a philosophy of non-duality basically says in very simplified terms that it breaks down the distinctions between good and bad, desirable and undesirable. Why? Between mind and body. Yeah, between mind and body. Why is it that, um, you know, the... um, ending the source of suffering is a desirable thing. And because that, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I, I right. remember reading a thing by Lacan, which, um, that said something along the lines of, yeah, the Buddhists are in a pointless task because they desire to end desiring. Yeah. It's, mm. and it seems contradictory from the yeah. outside, but there's yeah. the, um, and I think there's, we can use that sense of grasping that we were talking about earlier to, to kind of, look at the problem of, of Western Buddhists who, who want to attain enlightenment. It's mm, not really an want. attainable mm, thing. Mm. You can't grasp it. It's not something that you can kind of classify. Um, you can't find its boundaries mm. and, and kind of say, I have it. Mm. Um, en- enlightenment is, is kind of the absence of having, I guess. It's, it's the absence of needing to grasp something. Um, mm. And so if you're in... They, they sort of say in the, in the Japanese tradition that you might have a satori moment. And a satori is when you have, you're doing your meditation or you're doing your monastic tasks and you have a sudden moment of the dissolving of the ego and you feel it. You feel mm-hmm. yourself just dissipate and you're, you're simply um, an organism in its environment, an organism as its environment. How, um, how would that feel... Physically, I know that would be quite a hard task to describe. And I guess describing it, this is, this is what makes it so hard about Buddhism and enlightenment, mm. is that when you put words to it, you kind of put boundaries to it. But how do you best describe that experience of yeah. um, temporary enlightenment? Um, it's usually quite scary, I think. You're sort of like losing the ego for mm. a moment there. You say... Like it, you experience the sublime. 
Um, I mean, I, I would say it's very close to the idea of the sublime, the sort of the loss of the self in the face of the enormity of the universe. Mm. Um, but the, the distinction with Satori is it's kind of the, the absorption or, or the dissipation of the self into that, um, mm. into that enormity of the universe, that it's no longer a, a sense of fear and awe because you're standing separately from, from the magnitude of nature. It's that you enter into it and become one with the magnitude of nature. Um, and so there's nothing to grasp onto, in a sense. It's getting mm. rid of the need to grasp things at all. So mm. if you have that Satori moment and then you're like, I need to get that again, and you sit there trying to recapture it, right, yeah. you've completely missed the point and you'll yeah. never find it again. It's yeah. you, You've got to kind of try not to do that. Mm. Um, and yeah. so it's 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 a very difficult thing to do and to conceive of. You cannot want mm. to be enlightened if you're wanting to be enlightened. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So that's kind of the phenomenology of enlightenment. It, mm. like, that's the experience of um, attaining this selfless state of it. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of Buddhist um, practitioners and, and philosophers would, would kind of hate you reducing it down to a yeah. phenomenology yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a practical yeah. sense, it's, we yeah. need to kind of apprehend what's yeah. going on in that mm. psychological space. So, well, yeah. um, to maybe draw some more ire from Buddhist philosophers there. Excellent. That's um, what we want to do. Right? <laughs> what's the, if that's the, the phenomenology of, of enlightenment, what's the metaphysics underlying it in terms of, um, is the self an illusion in the sense that it's real but not as we perceive it? Is the self um, an illusion in that it just doesn't exist at all? Um, and is it dependent on that kind of idea of non-duality between between mind and body, between self and other? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose if we if we kind of take a step back into the metaphysics of of um, pre pre Buddhist um, Brahmins and and the Vedas, um, that's early sort of Hindu philosophy. Yeah. Theology. Yeah. 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 Um, so they, I guess. If we think about so sort of the the visible spectrum of light, for example, that we have, you know, from red to violet, and then on the other side, I mean, women can see slightly further into the ultraviolet spectrum than men can, so there are some distinctions in visible light. Um, but in general, we have this tiny little sliver of wavelength that we can mm. perceive, and on either side of that is um, an almost infinite. Mm. kind of stretch of things we cannot perceive Mm. um so in the end i I guess if we if we kind of keep compiling that idea that um when we hear something what we're doing is kind of excluding all the other sound and latching onto that one Mm. um particular frequency all those other frequencies are still going on permanently Mm. if we were able to perceive the entirety of the universe it'd be like the static on your tv just like Mm. nothing makes sense nothing stands out um you can't hear or perceive anything and so what the ego is doing is kind of creating an absence in Mm. that field of data um it's turning and, off the lights and shining a very narrow torch. Yeah. And yeah, with yeah, that yeah. torch, you can see a specific thing. And so and you, you can see things like the contrasts between things. And that's, we, we get tricked into thinking that those are real contrasts in the world, not merely a way of us perceiving 
distinctions in the universe around us. And so I guess it's sort of taking our ordinary perception as actually real perception um, mm-hmm. that, that we sort of say this is the real world and anything we can't perceive is kind of supernatural to it or something like that. Mm, um, right. And we've kind of, through our use of technology, we've brought more and more into the field of our ability to perceive. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the, that green picture you get of an X-ray is not actually X-ray light. You're not actually seeing yeah. the X-rays, right? You're seeing... Um, a relief of what that would look like mm. if that was the light that we saw. Um, but none of those are a neutral perspective and none of them are an absolute perspective. The only absolute perspective is kind of no perspective. Um, mm. And so while you, as a, a living incarnate body, kind of have a one-point view of the universe, mm. um, it's, it's a part of the ongoing process of the universe you're kind of your that they they would say um there's there's an old example that a a western child will generally ask a parent how was i made Hmm. and that's got a very sort of specific kind of construction thing to it and when you think about the way that we've thought about it in the west first it was the idea of god as kind of like a potter like mm. making things out of his hands and constructing the universe. And then from broadly Newton onwards, it's kind of like a clock with all these parts together that are mm. intricately mm. working. And so when a child asks that question, they, they genuinely think that they're put together somehow. Um, a Chinese child would more typically ask, how was I grown? And it has this idea of sort of coming out of the world and... and Um, emerging from it rather than kind of being put together as bits and then like plonked into it Hmm. Um, kind of forgot what tangent I was on here (laughs) Um, could you say that like this perception like which is generated by the ego again it comes back to language and that um, Mm. that funneling out I guess you distill certain bits of um, um, data that you experience through language and through enlightenment you um, I, when, when I f- was first introduced to Buddhism I was always so like I was like why what? just describe what enlightenment is yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and it was, was just like that it, it, the description was, is always along the lines of you know it was always there or um, um it's I am sitting I am breathing I am I am like present yeah and it's very it was always a very vague um description and so this funk this kind of um perception that you have of the world is always um a product of language and so would enlightenment be something where um uh you no longer construct stories or put um, words to things inside your own mind. Obviously, you have to do it when you communicate with people, but... Yeah, absolutely. But when, when you relate it to yourself. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, if we go back to the Buddha himself, I guess much of the way that they interpret the world is through attachment. Um, so karma, for example, is an attachment to the universe. Um, if you 
borrow money from someone, you are then attached to them through that relation you've created, and thus it becomes a source of karma for you. Um, I, I'm really skeptical of um, Western Buddhists who sort of describe good and bad karma. There's no such mm. thing. Karma is karma. <laughs> yeah. You're either attached to something or you're not. Whether you think it's a good or a bad thing, it doesn't really matter. You're still attached. Um, and so part of the process of enlightenment is eliminating this attachment to your categories that you define as yourself. Um, you're, you no longer consider yourself as attached to your name. Mm. You no longer consider yourself as attached to your um, national identity. Um, you no longer think of yourself as determined by your past. Mm. Um, so mm. in this way, it's very similar to sort of Jean-Paul Sartre's radical freedom. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's yeah, what I was seeing when I first got engaged um, to Sartre. Yeah, and a lot of people think Hume is very similar as well, the kind of bundle yeah, of self yeah. um, mm. idea. So yeah, so what you're what you're sort of trying to do is to eliminate your sense of attachment to your identity, your your conceptions of self. Um, Would you say so? In so at this, there's some studies going on at Johns Hopkins with psilocybin. So the colloquial term is magic mushrooms about end of life suffering. And lots of people describe the experiences like, you know, they forget their name. It becomes overwhelming. Um, there's like a sense of awe. Um, would you describe that as a temporary sense of, um, enlightenment or, I, I mean, I would say it's phenomenologically very similar. Okay. I mean, the idea of enlightenment is that you would not... You would not need to do something like that to achieve that state of mind. Yeah. And effectively that you're permanently in that state of meditation. You never exit it after a while. Hmm. Um, yeah, so... And I mean, there's a very... Um, close distinction in the sense uh, a lot of contemporary study on on psychedelic experience points to the fact that we're not actually hallucinating when we're on the drug we're mm. hallucinating when we're off it and what <laughs> yeah. the psychedelic yeah. experience is is breaking down your learned behaviors of what you shouldn't what you should be perceiving and how you should perceive them and so you're regressing back into a more holistic form of perception that you've mm. got more of the data coming in you're processing mm. more of that data as you would as raw experience it- is and so it might seem like static because there's just so much more yeah and it's so hard to process because the kind of the categories you would use to process it are also falling apart now Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean there's there's sort of i think it was uh daisen suzuki who kind of talked about how um babies are naturally enlightened creatures a a baby will sort of like crawl into a room as if it's got the most important baby business to do in there and then it'll just sit down and forget what it was doing here and just kind of look around and enjoy the universe a bit Mm. in a sense that's what a buddhist would do anyway they would kind of like charge into a room as if it's the most important thing and then they'd be like yep there's nothing to do in here i'm just gonna sit down um that's so contrary to the western notion of of children and development like the, yeah, the old moral development scale from um the work his name i forget um <laughs> where we see um children as basically sort of animals and then they slowly gather re- reason and, and through yeah. reason they start to un- uncover more information about morality and then eventually adults can maybe reach this enlightened stage of um being able to interpret the world through reason 
Yeah. Um, and it seems it's, like it flips that entirely on its head and goes, no. It's that concept of higher reason, which would, mm. is, is absurd. Like, reason is reason, right? Um, yeah. So it's, enlightenment is kind of like uh, going back to a childlike state of mind. In a certain in, sense. In a certain, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you if you kind of look at the way the Buddhists think about the world um, as us, sort of like the the notion of reincarnation is a bit separate from the notion of rebirth. Um, so rebirth is the idea of um, dying and going through the cycles of heaven and hell and returning as a physical organism mm. uh, in the universe through the the kind of power of the Brahman. Um, so reincarnation is kind of more of a sociological concept. Um, so when you're a child, you, you kind of, you take on the behaviors of the adults in your life. You, you take on their sort of mannerisms, um, their sort of learned phrases and things that pop Mm. into your head and you start thinking that's, that's who I am. That's Mm. what I am. So even the ego is, um, is not itself an internal construction it's a uh, something um externally constructed so that you've internalized yeah that you've so yeah. you know it's these external forces that you've internalized so it kind of also lends itself even more to the fact that the ego is not something separate from the yeah. world and even if if you sort of look at the different conceptions of the soul uh in in kind of judeo-christian Islamic sort of traditions, the soul is something that's inside the body. Mm. Um, it's very much that dualistic notion of, of self. The Buddhists would kind of think you, your soul is everything outside of your body. It's made up of your perceptions of the universe mm. and your, your mental categories. Um, mm. That your, you know, it's, it's not your skin that's keeping your body together. It's the air pressure pushing the skin down. You know, like the the outside of you, everything outside of you Mm. is kind of constructing what you are as a physical organism. Mm. You are as part of the atmosphere as the atmosphere is part of you. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting because I had someone describe to me um, that when they were running, they kind of felt like this weird state of like they were breathing in and breathing out and then the trees were breathing out oxygen and then breathing in their carbon dioxide. So it was kind of just like it, this weird sense of the boundary between my body. That's like, that's my air that I'm breathing in and breathing out kind of um, dissipated and in a crude type of sense, the, like the boundary dissolved. Yeah, that's what you're after. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what we should desire. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you should not desire to desire that. Yeah, I get. Uh, gets very complex there, yeah, doesn't it? Um, and I mean, much of the 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 desire portion of it is very practical in that. If if you desire lots of stuff and you don't get it, you're just going to be really depressed. If you, you desire, if you do desire lots of stuff and you do get it, you're going to get anxious that you're going to lose it, um, mm. or that somebody else is going to take it from you. That you need to protect this external crap that you've accumulated, um, and a, a much calmer, much more robust form of life is to uh, own things like your breath. You know, mm. like that's that's what you are is your 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 locus of breath. Um, and so, do you think that's a uh cultural 
a difference uh, or a, a, an aspect of Western culture that we value um, these external material things and possessions? Or do you think that's kind of a universal human experience which people, uh, like Buddhists, but people around the world have, have criticised? Yeah, I mean, there's... Um... Yeah, that's a bit of a tough one, I guess. I mean, the the history of property rights is fairly complex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> say the least. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose... Part of it kind of... Uh, I, I think much of the reason that we accumulate things in the Western world comes down to this idea... Uh, of that sort of fear of death that we need to leave something behind some kind of mark that we were here and so we accumulate an estate of things to leave to our kids or mm. or um you know if if we're wealthy enough we build monuments and mausoleums and whatnot so everyone knows we were definitely here mm. and part of that <laughs> is kind of this anxiety about the afterlife that something needs to guarantee i continue going on um the Buddhist conception is entirely reversed from that. The idea of continually going on is the continuation of suffering. Um, and so the ultimate goal of, of Buddhist practice is to kind of escape eternal life, not to achieve it. Um, and so I guess when you sort of let go of being permanent, you don't really care about that anymore. You don't need stuff mm. i mean you still i and this um in in kind of anarchist philosophy there's a distinction between private property and personal property um private property is you know you own the factory or you own the house and you determine who can come in and who can do what and um it's all a very kind of political concept whereas personal property is your toothbrush nobody wants to use your toothbrush they've got their own right um and so there's sort of this distinction between like things that you have a practical use for and things that you own for the prestige or for the social power that mm. comes from it um so a buddhist would not sort of criticize someone for for owning a bowl to have their have their rice in kind of thing because that's mm. that's actually a physical thing you use for a function not mm. to kind of be like check out my bowl that i own right. that none of you <laughs> can use it's yeah. mine um and so, so if you started to accumulate bowls yeah then you're making yourself the bowl guy and now yeah. that's an ego right you're mm. you're attached to your attachment to bowls you can't escape that mm. um and then sort of the Buddhist idea of reincarnation would be that your son grows up or your daughter grows up thinking bowls is how I become a person in this world. Mm. I accumulate bowls and sell them to people. Mm -hmm. And thus you've reincarnated this idea into the next generation of people. Um, so reincarnation ha has both a kind of psychological and religious mm. aspect to it in, in Buddhist philosophy that we're... Uh, Education. The education system is a form of reincarnation. We're kind of mm. folding the mistakes that we haven't realized we made back into the next generation of kids so that they can make it and mm. um, how, reinforce it into someone else. How, so how does meditation and becoming conscious of these like little quirks that you have or little reactions that you have um, basically um, dissolve your desires like that's something that i don't really know how that connects is like you become conscious of it and then it dissolves 
like your desire, you have a desire for something mm-hmm. and you become conscious of it and then it dissolves. How does that kind of interrelate? Uh, I think part of it is recognizing the, the connection between the desire and the suffering. Mm-hmm. You, you only really desire something you don't have. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess it, it's, it's kind of being like the stillness is meant to bring you to a point of uh, no, no longer having preferences in a sense. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, you sleep. Um, you no longer kind of think, I'm, I'm going to eat at nine o'clock because you're not sort of projecting yourself into the future and saying, I'm, I'm going to be an ego in this body at that point that mm. needs this thing. Um, you, you cease to think of yourself as existing in the future and the past mm. and just dealing with what's going on in the immediate future. So even concepts of future and past... Oh, sorry, are... in the immediate present, not maybe future. <laughs> yeah. Immediate present. So the concepts of even the future and the past are... Um, uh, functions of the ego. And yeah, absolutely. Attachments, yeah. Mm. It's an attempt to kind of situate the ego um, across time. That's like that's a, a, that's a... an interesting place to sort of bring in some, some Western thought which coheres with Eastern thought in, in this point. I know... Alan Watts has written about this, but he's sort of an explicitly East-West Indices mm. guy. Um, maybe someone like Derek Parfit, with his work on personal identity, and basically arguing that sort of the only thing, like, um, we are as people constantly changing, um, that, like, skin cells fall off and then we're a different person, and our experiences change, our brain states, and that changes stuff inside our body, and... From moment to moment, we are a different person. And you see that cumulatively when you look back at like your 10-year-old self versus yourself now. Yeah, That's yeah, different. Yeah. Um, and he sort of argues that the only thing that really exists is this relationship over time. The fact that we can look back at a past self and go, um, that was me. And that, that we can expect that after we go to sleep, we'll wake up tomorrow and experience something then too. But really, each each moment is a distinct person. Um, that seems very similar to this um, more Eastern idea about the self that's yeah. happening at the moment. And I mean, I, I guess... I can't remember who... I was reading something that was recently... That's a real bastardization uh, of Parfit. But. No, that's fine. We can bastardize it. Um, I can't remember who it was I was reading, but there was a, a neuroscientist who was uh, making the argument that um, our conscious experience that we think we're having in a live sense as the universe goes on um, is actually a hallucination in memory that we kind of get all this raw data coming in the brain processes it into a hallucination that we can actually conceive of and we we're actually hallucinating our experience permanently right I, I, guess, um, I guess that would be like to take a really extreme example someone with PTSD from like their past memories um, say, say someone, um, you know, was in a car accident, like a PTSD from it. And then, um, next time they're in a car, they get really frightened and, um, really anxious. And I guess the memories formed from the past then form your perception of the now. So the construction of how you think 
about what's happening now is basically um, a construction of future and past. And so would you say that um, really focusing on the present, being conscious of the present is kind of disentangling yourself from um, thoughts of the future and the past? Mm. Or would you say that um, it's... Yeah. I guess, um, in a sense, like the self only really exists in the future and the past. The self is kind of like an integrity of identity over time. Mm. Um, mm. If you, like, if we think of somebody with an absolutely perfectly broken short term memory, cannot remember a second before, mm. has no ability to kind of push that into the future they wouldn't really be constructing an identity. They wouldn't really... um, There's nothing that makes them them in a unique sense there apart from the ongoing kind of experience of being in the universe. But that's not attached to a sort of a category that you can project forward or project backwards Mm. to kind of understand the relation um, between this time and a time in the past. and I mean, that's, that's not to say that like Buddhists don't work with past and future, you know, like that, those are practical categories we can mm. use to move through the world. Mm. But I think it's, it's about uh, this sense of, are you, are you attaching yourself to that? Are you thinking of that as an integral part of who and what you are? Um, or are you able to separate yourself out from that uh, and, and, and cease trying to control that hallucination? Just kind of let that hallucination be... You don't, there's no you there to take control of it. And the more you try and sort of take control of it, um, the more pain you just kind of cause yourself. I yeah. Guess. yeah. Um, I guess they kind of say that when like, um, you're meditating and you have, um, intrusive thoughts or distressing thoughts pop up, you just need to like let go Else just like, acknowledge the thought is happening and, and let it move through because that's what yeah. thoughts do. If you try and latch onto that thought or rationalize about it, then you're kind of constructing an attachment to that thought. Mm. You're making mm. it something that is me focused and not just a thought that happened that mm. happened to occur in your head. Um, it, mm. and in a sense, it's sort of like the bottle identifying itself with the water that fills it up instead of recognizing mm. that it's the vessel that allows these things to move to, mm. to kind of um, take form in a sense. And so your, your psychology is, is not its content. Your, your psychology is the absence that allows mm. content to arise. And when you start to realize that, um, you start to feel as though you are nothing. That's just kind of like an empty vessel mm. for content. And so you no longer sort of prefer one content over another because none of that is actually related to who and what you are. So, I like that. So, you're kind of just the, uh, like the empty space or the subject of consciousness mm. or of content. Um, and you can be filled with, with like that, that, that conscious space can be filled with any content. Mm. Um, but you are not the content, you are the space that, that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if there's no, if like at the end, 
where you attain enlightenment and you like obviously in very simplified terms um and you no longer see the distinction between desire and undesirable what drives uh, what drives buddhists or enlightened people to do good things or like what how do they morally um interact with the world yeah morally interact with the world how they how do they judge murdering someone is not a good thing but you know giving um shelter to a homeless person is a good thing Mm. and and it should be done i mean there's a a kind of central aspect of compassion if you recognize that you are the universe then you Mm -hmm. kind of owe the same duty to it that you would kind of think you owe to yourself of of um that sort of virtuous maximization of um what is the best i i can be if you think of you as Mm. the entirety of everything that fills up your consciousness the people around you the animals the plants um you need to take care of all of that as if it was you because you are that Mm. Um, having said that that i mean buddhists have been very violent (laughs) throughout history i mean if you think of like the edo period in japan they were they were burning down one another's monasteries while they were meditating inside of it over like very slight distinctions in in doctrine and um very large distinctions in Mm. political affiliation um Hmm. and so it's not it's yeah this is kind of taking us towards the connection of philosophy with politics and, and religion. Yeah, um, absolutely. Buddhism is often like spoken about in the West as if it is, or well, as a religion. Yeah. Um, and here we're talking about it as a philosophy or as a um, philosophical doctrine. Um, is there much of a distinction there? And I, I mean, I, I feel like there shouldn't be. But we've kind of made it so there is. Um, so if we think about Pythagoras, he was a religious leader. Mm. Uh, he basically formed a religion around the concept of the number three. Yeah. He thought it was so integral to the way the universe works that we should, we should kind of worship it, right? That was wild, yeah. <laughs> Pythagoras was crazy. <laughs> I, I, what a, yeah. What's with the number three? What's going on with three? <laughs> uh, it's, a pri- it's, like, it, it's one of the first prime numbers. Uh, is it? No, so seven. So seven is the first prime number. Um, Except, yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> One, <laughs> two, and three are prime numbers. And I, yeah. I, I had a friend who was studying music, five. and he was like, if Pythagoras had bothered to count to five, he would have invented modern musical theory. But he was just like, that would be immoral. So we <laughs> yeah. stop at three. Anything above that is excessive. And so we do cycles of three in Pythagorean music. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a lot of that's kind of disappeared. Um, we don't really have much except for what his disciples said where his kind mm. of uh, his religious proclivities. Um, it was but most not of, stepping on a particular type of flower, I think. Yeah. And there was like, the the bean that there's like a certain kind of bean that you get rice and poison out of. Okay, uh, I know they use the 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 bean gets used in that show um, Breaking Bad. He mm-hmm. uses the bean to to drive some rice and to attempt to poison someone who's blackmailing them or something like that. That bean grew on the island where Pythagoras had his his religious colony, and so he was like, "Don't eat the beans, you'll die." And now everyone who reads through his stuff is like, "Why does Pythagoras hate baked beans?" Um, and it's a very specific bean yeah. he was talking about. Um, so yeah, so we have we have this idea of. Um, 
So philosophy and, and religion. Yeah, and they, they were very, very integrally linked. Mm. Um, philosophy was definitely a, a, a very kind of mystical process mm. for a long time. Um, Socrates argued that he was he was getting most of his um, thoughts from a from a, a voice in his head. Basically, mm. he was listening to a demon who would be like, "That's, That's not right." right. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, um, he put the demon on his shoulder. Yeah, as like yeah. that was his moral voice, and it would it would kind of you know give give him mm. a give him a bit of a, a bump whenever he thought something didn't sound quite right. Yeah, what, what was like, the term for that? Uh, I think it was just daemon. Like, yeah. The daemon, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was so, that classic AE. But, but <laughs> I mean, like, it, so... How... So I mean, even the, the Gnostic yeah. Christians were effectively mm. um, platonic philosophers who were attempting to do philosophy with this new J- Judaic faith that's filtering into Europe. Mm. Um, as I, Camus wrote a book called... Um, uh, what's it? Christian Christian philosophy and Neoplatonism, or something. Mm-hmm. It was basically his his master's thesis or his right. honors thesis, and he looks at the way that we we kind of shifted from uh, a, a Greek way of conceiving the world to a Christian one, and that mm-hmm. we see that as being the pathway between us and the Greeks, but it's actually where we get cut off from the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks would be very comfortable thinking of philosophy and religion as broadly compatible. Which we seem to be in the West for a long time. Like, philosophy was led by the scholastics and for a long period. Though I think part of the problem there is that philosophy was becoming constrained by religion, that we mm. sort of had this idea that all reason is only reason if it conforms to the word of God. Right, yeah. And so that, that becomes a constraint on our ability to apply reason. It mm. has to function in a certain way. Um, I, I just don't get the feeling that sort of Greek, Greek religion was not much like that. It, it almost had more of a like, um, you have to believe in varies kind of mm. feel to it. Like, you know, uh, Zeus lived on top of a very climbable hill. Yeah. Nobody really <laughs> yeah. thought there was like a god <laughs> sitting there. But at the same time, like, it's a real faith, like, but there's a sort of psychological component to it that um, mm. uh, Apollo, Dionysus, Zeus, these, these gods are expressions of manifestations in the universe, mm. um, collections of psychological phenomena. Mm. Uh, and so we, we need to keep reinforcing these things. We need to play... Apollonian music and and do Apollonian meditation to ensure the continuation of Apollo as a force in the universe kind of thing mm. um, yeah it's sort of it's it's very funny watching people kind of like criticize ancient religion as if they believed it in the way that we believe our religion now mm-hmm. um, very different relationship to kind uh, of representations of both material things in the world like Apollo's sun um, yeah, the sun god, um, but also representations of psychological traits which we ascribe to these gods. And... Yeah, and so they they occupy a kind of a middle world in in the way that we we know that a, a character in a play is both real and not real. Mm. 
that's sort of what the gods are in a sense they are they're a representation of things that are kind of both real and not real mm-hmm. they're like a middle world um yeah i i very frequently argue that the greeks are not they're not western thinkers they're just the most western mm-hmm. asians right <laughs> i want to ask you about that absolutely yeah. um so so how are they eastern thinkers not west western um, well, I mean, they, for a start, Pythagoras, he, he learned everything he knew about maths from Egypt. Um, the ancient world was not separate. Like, mm. you know, the Persians were talking to the Indians, the Indians were talking to the Greeks. Mm. Um, there's a whole lot going on there. Mm. I think the modern West sort of distinguishes itself by becoming kind of obsessed with these absolutes and i think that comes in a bit with the the christian faith though there are other um what is it, the manichaeans was a persian yeah. faith that sort of believed in absolute ideas of good and evil yeah and a lot of that got incorporated into catholicism because augustine was originally a manichaean yeah before he became um and now we use the word Manichaean to mean like yeah, this in, in french philosophy yeah. they will still use manichaean to mean dualism yeah um, so yeah, absolute, so, good, good and evil forces in the world that yeah, need to be balanced in some way. A- absolute stark hell in, in did, Christianity. Did Buddhism influence the ancient Greek or kind of like the ancient roots of of what's widely considered Western civilization? Um, yeah, I mean, like Aristotle would have been very aware of Buddhism as a right, philosophy, okay. right? Uh, I think. Because he, he was the tutor of Alexander the Great, and when Alexander mm. the Great hit um, the Mauryan Empire in its early days, he was like, I have conquered the world. There is nothing <laughs> else to conquer. Because it was just so monolithically huge. It was the mm. first time India as a continent had been owned by a single power. I think at that point it was still a Jainist. Technically, they, wow. it, J- Jainism was the official religion under... Um, Chandragupta, I think his name was. Chandragupta was the was the Jainist. Right. He had famously a blue spot on his forehead because his father would sit there and um, train himself to eat poison so nobody could poison him. And one day, <laughs> so he wouldn't have to worry about it. He didn't have to get one of his servants to eat yeah. the food and die. And he'd be like, yeah, I'll just eat it. If they poison it, they poison it. I'll get a little sick and that's it. And so he's eating his food and his wife reaches over and grabs something off his plate and eats it. And it has been poisoned this time. And she starts dying. And so he cuts the child out of her belly as she's dying at oh dinner. God. And the, the poison had just got in enough to like leave this like mark on his forehead for the rest of his life. And so he, um, that's Chandragupta, and he becomes Chandragupta. <laughs> that's a hectic story. That's, that's one he, he <laughs> conquers out. most of India that's left after his, um, after his father and his son was Ashoka the Great. And Ashoka is very famous for being the first Buddhist leader in history. Right. He, um, I'm pretty sure he eliminated gender differences in the law. He, he gave um, women property rights, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he was the first person to institute vegetarianism. He banned slavery in all mm-hmm. of India. Um, and he did sort of like a... He went on a nice little... Um, what, what pilgrim, uh, 300-ish, sort of at the end of just after Alexander's reign. Yeah, so when people talk about how the Europeans are so noble for 
being the first to eliminate slavery. (laughs) 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 Maureen Empire, well ahead of them. Um, So yeah, Ashoka went around and like left what's known as the Ashoka Pillars at all the significant points in in the Buddha's life. So where he was born in Lumbini, you can still go see the little birthing pool where the Buddha was born. They used to, he did water births in the town of Lumbini in Nepal. It's still there. Absolutely amazing. And so Alexander the Great's conquest of India would have brought back kind of these Buddhist elements and... Um, Well, I mean, they would already have been moving that way for quite some time. Um, I mean, it, and, and so there, there's, uh, for example, the one of the kingdoms that was left behind. So when Alexander um, dies, he famously left his kingdom to his three top generals, and that was a shit fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we end up with like fifteen post Greek Persian countries, and one of them mm-hmm. is called Bactria, right. which is modern day Afghanistan, and that huh. is known as the Greco Buddhist kingdom. Mm-hmm. It was the first place mm-hmm. where human formed statues of the Buddha were made. Prior to that, he was kind of more represented by sort of cyclical parts of nature, like a river, a a tree in growth, the tree of life kind of idea. Mm. Um, But the Greeks were very obsessed with the human form as an art form. And so they they clash with those. They kind of like sitting Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where um, Bodhidharma was from, was from what's now modern-day Afghanistan. And he's so the guy, yeah. he, he travelled across India to China and founded Zen. Right, he okay. also found a... Well, he didn't found the Shaolin Monastery. He turns up and they're all fat, lazy monks that are just, you know, they're just there to live the good life because they managed to get into a monastery. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to train with you guys until you turn yourself into something respectable. So he gave them some basic martial training and then it like exploded into what the Shaolin monastery is today. Mm, um, right. So he, he's And that's really, like the archetypal like fighting monk for the Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <That's the time. laughs> um, so Bodhidharma was was he was thought of as like this barbarian from the West. Mm. Um, which was only Afghanistan, we wouldn't even think that is the West these yeah. days. But for China that's very far west, right? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, a, a lot of that would have been moving in and out of the Persian Empire. There would have been plenty of people coming from India into the Persian Empire and plenty of them going out into the Greeks. And so this stuff was floating around a fair bit. You can see kind of um, interactions in trade and whatnot between Buddhists mm-hmm. and Greek thinkers. and and stuff like that. So it's floating around a fair bit. Mm. What, what school of Buddhism do you um, kind of adhere to? Um, I'm, I'm probably somewhere between the, the Zen, Zen side of things and um, a more traditional form of Taoism. Okay. Uh, Broadly speaking, Zen is kind of the interaction between Taoism and traditional Buddhism. Right. Um, what are the hallmarks of Zen and Taoism compared to... Yeah, so... Taoism is very much more... Mm, how to put that? Uh, it's a bit of an interesting <laughs> yeah. question. Um, Taoism is where we get the yin yang 
simple, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very nature-based religion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Of, it, it was originally uh, a very matriarchal kind of society that okay. uh, w- women are the givers of life. It was kind of the philosophy of farming cultures in uh, the northern parts of China. Mm-hmm. If you want to generate life, who do you put in charge? A woman. Um, and so women were sort of the matriarchs of, right. of Taoist society for was, a long time. It was nature seen as very, uh, very much um, a feminine... Not essence. at all. Uh, it, 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 the, the feminine is... Um, by defining the feminine, you've defined the masculine. Once, once we separate right. those yeah. two things yeah. out, we, we've created an artificial distinction in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess to... nature kind of embodies both. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like a great example of the non-duality idea we're talking about. It's it yeah. the most of, perfect yeah. expression yeah. of it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Where it, we create it, these categories to make sense of the world. Yeah. And in doing so, we separate what is one into these two two categories that actually depend on each other in order to be defined. Yeah. Can't understand masculine without feminine, can't understand good without bad. And Yeah, and if you, if you read the Tao Te Ching, a lot of the stuff in there is, you know... Um, about how sages don't rely on concepts. We don't have a conception of what the good is because once we do that, we've invented evil. Mm. So if we don't sit here and, and worry about the good is uh, what the good is, we, we're not going to create evil. Um, mm. if, if we as a society um, create security, we have, by doing so, created insecurity somewhere else. By, mm. by accumulating weapons, we're inviting war. Um, once you write the law, you create criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we, we are the ones who are doing yeah. these things by separating these categories out of a unified kind of world. But the things that are being categorized would still exist, right? Like, the, even if um, murder isn't illegal, it's still people are, are, are dying. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess this kind of comes back to what we were asking before about, like, how how do you um, actually sort of interact with the world in, in a moral sense if you have this non-duality? Yeah, um, approaching things non-dual. The 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 typical thing, and this has been taken up. I think it's more associated now with Bruce Lee. Most people don't realize Bruce Lee had a PhD in philosophy. What? Shit! <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> dude! Oh my god! Yeah, a part Lee's. of it was him and his own stunts, and he invented his own system of martial arts as well. It's it's a whole different school of martial arts. I think it broadly translates to the lightning fist or something like that. Yeah, um, very what different way of doing things. Um, but he's he's got this phrase that he uses, and Bruce it comes Lee's from. PhD. <laughs> Sorry, God. It comes out of old Taoist philosophy, which is "be as water." That you mm, are not, okay. you're not some kind of solid thing. Uh, you're the flow of the universe. Um, so I guess we, if if we kind of think about like the, um, the river, is the form that the water takes as it. Mm. And we're, we, we're, we're not the river, we're just the thing moving through that, where the, our conscious experience is like that, um, the content of the river rather than its form. Um, the other thing about water is it always seeks the lowest of places. Water is always finding a way downwards to somewhere really low down, and by doing so, it nourishes everything. Water never tries to climb the tree. Try and climb the tree, you're um, 
trying to make yourself above and over everybody else. Uh, and you'll end up in the competition and you'll fall down and hurt yourself. And so, but the water goes straight to the bottom and it's always fine and it makes everybody else happy. Never asks about, you know, what's in it for itself. Um, so much of the, the Taoist moral philosophy is to take water as, as your moral philosophy. Hmm. Be as water. Absolutely malleable. Always seeking the lowest of places. Always seeking to nourish what's around you. Right. Yeah. We're cutting through the stone over millions of years. Um, how much time have you got left, Tom? Um, it's twelve forty-two now. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Not heaps of time left myself. But you guys can carry on chatting after I'm gone. Okay. And we can have a wrap up the yourself if you like. Maybe just have one more question to ask. Do you have any? Sure. Um. Potentially. But okay. Go first. Um. People that go through near-death experiences and they kind of come back miraculously describe it as um, becoming, like, first of all, their fear of death evaporates. And, and, or sometimes a, um, a lot of fear comes to them. But in a lot of cases, a lot of people report that... Um, they almost become one with everything and you know i become i became like a tree i became the trees i became the water all this type of stuff yeah. is and in um this is this is something alan watts actually expressly uh addresses he calls it um satori by extreme circumstance mm, mm. That, uh, and it, it's mostly from the time period that he was writing it's mostly people who had shell shock from the yeah, mm. and that they're you know they're sitting there they hear the whistle of the bomb coming down and they just accept everything in the universe all of it just ceases to worry them and the way people sort of talk about when you jump off a bridge if you're suicidal before you hit mm. the ground you'll kind of realize that none of it mattered that it, it's all just like this yeah well, this well cosmic they kind game. of go to the bridge thinking like and, it doesn't matter but it and they, matter. yeah at, well and so the bomb's coming down they accept they're going to die all of their kind of proclivities about the universe cease to mean anything. They no longer, you know, why did I care so much that I bought that, that kind of beer instead of another kind of beer? <laughs> like I had so much anxiety about which beer I drank and like suddenly I realized none of that ever mattered. Mm. Nothing at all. And they're fully ready to die and then the bombs are dud. <laughs> and then they're just like stuck now. They're kind of like, I can't recapture that feeling, but like I... I've been there, I recognize they're sort of like, it, it becomes this sort of disjunction, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, you should be able to try, or, or the, the, the idea of Buddhism, and, and I guess Taoism as well, is that you should be able to achieve that without being nearly killed, it's, hopefully. So it's kind of um, like the practice of dying, in a certain sense. Yeah. Like the, it's kind of practicing for the moment. And if we get okay. to sort of um, more contemporary, actually not really more contemporary, more modern, not quite contemporary. So um, uh, Miyamoto, Miyamoto Masushi was the only undefeated samurai in Japanese history. He wrote a book called The Book of Five Rings, mm -hmm. which is notionally the art of swordsmanship, but it's really sort of the art of Buddhism through the metaphor of the sword. Huh. Um, and one of the things that him and his disciples would advocate for is to live as if you're a walking corpse. You're already dead. 
You're just waiting for that moment to come and confirm it. Uh, and if you do that, you cease to fear things like death. You can just kind of walk into battle without worrying about it because you're already a dead man holding a sword. Um, so yeah, there, there is a, a kind of... I mean, a willfulness towards death as as a necessary part of your life. Mm. You shouldn't... It's in, inescapable. Seems very yeah. similar to the Stoics then. In, in a sense, you, you conquer death by ceasing to worry about it. Mm. And that is one of the pathways into enlightenment. If you're already yeah. dead, you don't have to worry about stuff. Like, yeah, that, like that, was, that was my question, is that are uh, the dying and the people with, um, you know death right in front of their eyes um they can be usually the most enlightened mm. be, like or, or they're usually in, they become enlightened would you say that depending of course yeah. how, how they how they approach i mean it's death. it's a bit hard for me to claim that someone's enlightened or not right mm-hmm. um even yeah even even if you're sort of studying under a Buddhist master, it's a bit controversial as to whether or not you've actually, depending on who you claim yeah, your masters are, it's meant to be like one continuous line of um, enlightenment all the way back to Siddhartha Gautama. You know, mm. your 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 teacher learned from, etc. Mm. etc. Et but but I guess I mean I guess the dying could be considered in Buddha in Buddhism sacred. Yeah. I mean, that's you... And someone to learn from. Dying isn't you coming out of... uh, Or disappearing from the world. It's you going back into it, right? You're um, you're returning to the oneness of nature. You're dissolving back into the soil. Um, You're ceasing to be a particular expression of a a part of the universe. And you're Mm. returning to being the whole thing. Um, So there's not really anything to worry about in that. You're Mm. you're just kind of... Sort of like... um, should the apple be worried about dropping from the apple tree? Mm. Not really. It brings it closer to the earth and then it gets the chance to become the tree. You know, like. mm-hmm. But we're, we're stuck in this idea that, you know, we are this particular thing and then, then mm. I must hold on to my um, existence as the apple on this tree. And if I mm. were to fall off of it, I'd need someone to remember me as an apple. <laughs> Not really. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. yeah. We should do a whole podcast on death. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, all of this ends up coming into, for example, Freud's death drive is basically just pulled straight out of Buddhist mm. philosophy. Okay. Um, that's what he, the, his book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. The pleasure mm. principle is the first thing that motivates us to act, but we sometimes do things that don't seem associated with pleasure. We'll do mm. things, you know, like skydiving or bungee jumping that's, like, actually kind of terrible, mm. um, kind of terrifying. And he thinks that what's going on here is this sort of secret desire sitting in the background that pushes us towards death as the finality of life and as Mm -hmm. a a kind of return to um, sort of the imminent universe, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's very much structured in modern psychology. I suppose the problem is while there's so many roots of Buddhist philosophy in contemporary psychology, it's also cheapened a bit. Like when you hear a psychologist talk about mindfulness, yeah, it just doesn't feel the way that the Buddhists would talk about mindfulness. Mm. Um, it's a 
strategy. In order yeah. To, yeah, in order to gain something else where the Buddhists would say yeah. you it was yeah, always there. Mm. It's just a it's just a process of realizing Yeah. You always had it. Or like and like little pet peeves when I see corporations being like, we should practice mindfulness so we can increase productivity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you don't understand. Um, and and even in a sense like the the to the Buddhists the, the mindfulness is productivity. You're being productive when yeah. you're being mindful. Mm. When you wash the dishes, you're mindful. Mm. Um, mm. If you're doing that for a paycheck, you're no longer doing it mindfully because mm. your entire conception of what you're doing is something yeah. external to it. Um, Speaking of which, yeah, I do need to go and wash dishes for a paycheck. Absolutely. Do you have any more questions? Because I can... Um, happy for you to continue. Before I leave, um, I might sort of add this on at the end or at the start maybe, but... Um, We've kind of discussed a, a lot of broad ideas from Buddhism, but also from other elements of Eastern thinking and relating that to existentialists and, and Greek, yeah. Greek philosophy. Um, briefly, like, why should people engage in this kind of philosophy? Like, what's the value in Eastern philosophy in general, but also in trying to understand how it relates to Western philosophy? Yeah. I mean, because we don't much. The, the first point is that you're very very discouraged in Eastern religions from proselytizing. Um, I, I feel like if Christians believe what they say they believe, they should be in the streets shaking people yeah. and telling them, you need yeah. to do this for your salvation. For a Buddhist, if you don't make it in this iteration of your life, you've got an infinite series of them to try after this. So what's, what's the worry? Um, so the first point is... You, you might def- come to the Buddhism. You don't the Buddhism re- might come to you. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't really have to. There's, there's no reason to. Okay. If you want to eliminate suffering from your life, this is a tool that can help you do that. Mm-hmm. It's not the only one. Um, I find it very useful. I, I find it to be infinitely more useful than Western psychology, for the purpose of eliminating daily suffering. Um, the other really good point is that you learn more about your own culture when you start studying another one. So mm. the more Chinese philosophy I learnt, the more I saw the gaps and reliefs in Western conceptions of how the mm. world works. And my understanding of Descartes and Hume and Kant is infinitely richer from having read Bodhidharma, oh. Daisetsu Suzuki, mm. um, Dogen Zenji. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Always look at something outside of your regular field. If and one final question. What book would you recommend people read? Mm. What's one book? It can be completely irrelevant to this. It yeah. could just be your favourite yeah. favorite fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you want. One book. Yeah, that's a, that's a tall order, that one. Mm. Um, I did mention the book of Five Rings okay. earlier. Mm. I would I would really recommend that. It's very short. It's sort of like ten, <laughs> 10 chapters and by the end of it you realize none of it has anything to do with swordsmanship. Yeah. Right. It's, okay. it's all very much about um the discipline of the self and the soul and Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Great book. Okay. Adrian, thank you for coming on Pillar Talk. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pillar Talk. Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is co-produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by Isaac Haynes.